0: need to start volunteering with the high school students and i was like if i have to lord i'll make any sacrifice no sacrifice is too great for you so that's super exciting i can't wait for the ping pong table to come i'm probably like i'm top five one-eyed ping pong players in nelson so that's i don't want to to say it's like a big deal but let's let's be honest okay Uh, revelation chapters 8 all the way through 19 get really weird really quick. And Revelation, as you might be picking up, is not an easy book to just read and immediately apprehend. And chapters 8 through 19 are kind of extra spicy and challenging. And you could literally Google 20 different... Uh, sites on how to understand chapter 9 of Revelation, or chapter 11, or chapter 15, and you could get 20 different answers. They might be nuanced a bit, but there's not a lot of harmony among uh, Bible scholars and theologians on the best way to understand these verses, or sorry, these chapters. So you have this big chunk in the middle of Revelation where you're reading about dragons and... um, Symbolism that to us has little or no meaning and very, very strange and earthquakes and stars falling from the sky. And as I've been thinking about it and preparing for this section of Scripture through this series, what I wanted to make sure that people are kind of braced for is that I'm not going to drill down into every kind of jot and tittle between chapter 8 and chapter 19. Um, what I want to do instead, I mean, we could literally spend months and months and months and months doing that. Uh, instead, I want to show you some patterns that get repeated and some dimensions to the text that happen in that section of Revelation so that you can kind of, again, keep the, the forest in mind even when the, you don't exactly know what kind of tree you're looking at or how to make sense of the particularities of these verses. Um, and I want to make sure that as we move through Revelation, we're always drawing back to, oh, okay, this helps me to make sense in terms of my relationship with Jesus here and now and how to follow Jesus faithfully. So those are kind of the big picture things that I have in mind. So we'll be moving through this section, I wouldn't say quickly, but not at, not at even like a chapter per week. We're going to be going at a faster pace than that. Now today I want to look at the seven trumpet judgments. This is Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and into a little bit of 11. Now that's a, a big chunk of scripture. And so what I've done is um, in the middle column on this handout that you've been given is the kind of the um, highlights of what the seven trumpets are so that's what I'm going to read for my passage we're not reading all of chapters 8, 9, 10 and a little bit into 11 just for the sake of time but I want to read you what the seven trumpet judgments are because they come out of um, the seal judgments that we've just read about so that again we're at least sort of on the same page there is some stuff in there that I'll move back into next week in terms of the two witnesses but for now I'm just going to read through that middle column and you can follow on the double-sided sheet. So Revelation 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown into the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So right out of the gate. Crazy stuff going down. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Then the fifth angel sounded, and i saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth the, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like a giant smoke sorry like the smoke of a giant furnace and so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke from the pit and then the sixth angel sounded and i heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind and they did not, and they speaking of mankind, did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts then the seventh angel sounded And there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth." earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquakes, and great hail. So that's skipping over some chunks of Revelation chapter 8 through um, kind of the end of 16, which occupies this huge middle section of Revelation, which is really super strange. But I want us to understand at a big picture level what's happening with these trumpet judgments. So one of the ways to think about this really confusing, weird section of Revelation is that there are three judgments of seven. Seven, seven, seven. Happens three times. So already if maybe you're a little bit more familiar with Jewish symbolism, seven kind of represents perfection or completeness. Three, three, uh, you know, shows up all the way in, or throughout Scripture as a not-so-subtle reference to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this middle part of Revelation presents 7 a scroll with seven seals that then is followed by angels with seven judgments. And then eventually, starting in chapter 15, we get to seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And in order to understand what's happening with these seal judgments and trumpet judgment and bowl judgments, it's really important to understand that these kind of frame this middle section of the book. That it all fits together. It's probably not a great idea to just jump into the middle of Revelation and try and make sense of what's happening on the fourth um, trumpet judgment if we don't keep this larger picture in view of what's happening. So the question is kind of how are we to understand these seven seal judgments followed by seven trumpet judgments followed by seven bowl judgments. Are they sequential? Meaning, are they one through 21, a sequence going from, you know, A, B, C, D, or is there some overlap? And if so, how does that work? So, let me just share with you kind of the major views of this and how to make sense of these drug judgments and therefore these trumpet judgments. So some look, some look at these judgments, all, you know, 777, and say these are a sequence of events that some believe, like the preterists, say that all happened in the past. That was all events that were leading up to the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Some of the judgments, the final ones refer to the final judgment day of the Lord, but 90%, the first six judgments, the first six seals, six trumpets, um, uh, six bowls, are sequential events that have already happened. Some would say they are happening now. Historicists would say each of these judgments have been poured out at different times since the church to now. So over 2,000 years, they're one-off events and one follows the other. Some say it's going to happen in the future. This is probably the most dominant view within evangelical Christianity that there's a tribulation period in the future and when that tribulation period begins, these judgments are going to start unfolding very quickly over a short period of time. So, some believe that these are a sequence of events that have either happened in the past, are happening now, or have yet to happen, but are going to happen in the future. A second group of theologians would say the seals and the trumpets and the bowls aren't actually representing a really strict chronology of 21 judgments happening in a sequential order, in a neat and tidy way. But instead, they're a series of visions looking at the time of great tribulation from different angles. Now remember, different groups are going to define the great tribulation differently. Some say, oh, the great tribulation, that's in the future. That's a seven-year period. Others say the great tribulation is the age of the church, when the church was established till Jesus returns. All of it, all of history. And some would say the great tribulation primarily refers to the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So even within this context, uh, there's some disagreement But this view would essentially say um, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls aren't sequential. They're actually kind of the same judgments looked at kind of through... You're looking at the same house. You're just looking through different windows. Here's the evidence for that. The seven bowls judgments that come at the end are nested within the seven trumpets, which are nested within the uh, seal judgments. So they're not presented as here are the 21 judgments. It's there's seven, then there's another seven, then there's another seven. But they're connected and they come from within the other. So there's kind of this interesting symbolic illusion that they are all inside of one another. Each set of seven, and this is where you, um, if you skip to the last two pages on this outline that compares the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, uh, and I forgot to print this in color, so it's not going to show up uh, the way that I wanted it to. But uh, each, of the, each of the judgments uh, end with kind of a final judgment. Each set of seven culminates with a final judgment. Which kind of doesn't make sense if the first round of seven is like final judgment. But then there's like another round, and that one is like final judgment. And then there's like another, seven, another round of seven, and there's another final judgment. So some theologians and commentators look at this view and say, because at the end there is this final judgment, this day of the Lord, this um, bringing all powers against God to naught, we're seeing the same thing from different angles. So for example, one commentator says the anchor point for this view um, that can't be ignored are verses in chapter 6 in the seals and then in chapter 16 with the bulls that refer to every island and every mountain fleeing away. So when we have a seal judgment, we have this, one of the final judgments is that you know, every mountain is laid low, that, that every island, every mountain flees. That happens again at the end of the bold judgments. And this commentator said, the usage of the words every and all limit the event to happening only once. So therefore, the moving of every island and mountain, whether you understand that literally or symbolically, they're moved out of place in chapter 6. That has to be the same thing that's happening in chapter 16. And so therefore, while Christians might disagree on how everything fits together, the events of Revelation's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, I would certainly argue, I mean, it might not be the... you know I'm just, I'm just one person. But I would argue, I don't think what we're being asked to see here is a strict sequence of 21 judgments. But God's final judgment, bringing His justice to bear on the world, and we're seeing it from different angles. We're seeing this time of great tribulation from different perspectives. And some of you've even, even tried to play with, are the seals like the perspective of like how believers see, experience a final judgment versus the trumpets as non-believers. And then the bowl is like the finality of all things. There have been some people who have tried to stipulate that the seal judgments are kind of what's happening at the big picture and then you split it and the trumpet judgments are what's happening in the spiritual realm and the bold judgments are what's happening in the material realm dimension that we can see, because God is moving towards a new heavens and a new earth. There has to be kind of a complete overhaul of the entire system, seen and unseen. So again, there's not a lot of consensus there, but there is some good scholarship and some good clues within the text that we're actually looking at the same thing in, from different angles. Now, regardless of one's interpretation of the seven seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments. Um, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds of those things. What I would want to draw our attention to are just the really important truths that are being reinforced through these passages, through these chapters in Revelation. You know, the first, and I, I hope it's fairly obvious, but it's a big theme of this middle section of Revelation, which is God's judgment against sin and against those who refuse to turn to Him and live in ways that are counter-life, literally anti-God, anti-life, anti-Christ, God's judgment against, that is inevitable. Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. One of the big themes of Revelation is we are headed towards a final day of judgment. History isn't just going to cycle on forever. It has a point, it has a purpose, there's an end game. And revelation is written in part to comfort Christians with that truth. To know that suffering isn't just something that's inevitable and going to carry on forever. Evil isn't something that's inevitable and just going to be allowed to run amok forever. Sin as a power and as an oppressive, suppressive force isn't just going to be allowed to have free reign over God's good creation. God is going to intervene and God is going to judge. Bring force to bear against the forces of evil. Now I totally get, in our context, I feel it as a pastor, when we talk about God as a judge or the judgment of God, like the hairs kind of go up on the back of your head, especially if you're sensitized to the fact that so many people associate the word judge, judgment, with really just like judgy and self-righteousness. So culturally, the zeitgeist of our times is no one wants to be thought of as judgmental. In all of our conversations, even when we're judging people, we're really quick to say, I'm not trying to judge. That is like a, that's like a, that's a scarlet letter to be thought of as a very judgy, judgmental person. And so when we hear throughout Scripture that God is a judge, that God's judgment is something that God Uh, seems to be completely comfortable enacting in certain times and places, and is going to enact in the future in a total way, it makes sense that a lot of people hear that and are like, kind of recoil. They're like, oh, I don't know if I like, can worship a God who judges people. I don't judge people. I just live and let live, and I just want to like, love everybody and accept everybody, and it's all good, as long as you're not hurting other people. Um... I don't know if I can wrap my head or even if I want to wrap my heart and life around a God who judges. Being judgy, right, is not something that's attractive about the Christian faith. Most young people, most people who are um, not exposed to Christianity, one of their presumptions is that Christians are very judgmental and that comes from serving a God who is very judgmental and is very comfortable with judgment. Now this is a really challenging, del- delicate issue, but I just want to give you a counterintuitive thought that might help you when you wrestle with God as judge and sort of feel that internal opposition to that. Or if you have friends, co-workers, family members who you hear that from, that's a major reason why they uh, kind of hold Christianity at bay is that God is a judge. I don't want to serve a God who judges. I just want to serve a God who loves. So here, here's, here's that counterintuitive thought. You actually do want a God that judges. You actually do want that. If you can just suspend your emotional connections negatively to the word judge, when you are wronged, When forces are brought to bear on your life that might lead you to go to prison because you're wrongfully accused or someone mistreats you and you want to take action, there's a few things you hope for. Number one, that you get to stand in front of a judge and plead your case and that judge executes justice so that you can walk free, so that you don't have to pay a penalty that you uh, for a crime that you didn't actually commit. You also want judgment in the biblical sense. Judgment is when God's force, and it can come through a number of different conduits, but it's when God's force comes to bear on a person, a situation, a nation, in order to stop an overwhelming momentum of sinful destruction and uh, self-sabotage and, and, and just... Uh, complete spiraling into chaos if there is a god and if that god has given us free will and part of what that means is we are capable of plotting evil nurturing evil and enacting evil in the world surely you want a god who has a fail safe so that if things really start going to hell in a handbasket god's reaction isn't that eh, what are you going to do They'll figure it out. You actually want a God who is going to step into your life, society, the globe, the earth, and say enough is enough. You want a God who's willing to intervene. And that's what judgment means. God steps into a situation and intervenes in order to break the momentum of destruction and sin. There have been a lot of weird ideas, weird theories, weird um, ways of framing and understanding the world during this pandemic and how we should move forward. There have been some very stupid ways of framing that thing. Do you want to know the stupidest? I don't know if it's the stupidest. It's one of them, is the abolish the police movement. That's super stupid. That, and it's Kissing Cousin Defund the Police, is a misunderstanding of how society flourishes. When you are saying, I want to abolish the police, bring them to naught, what you are actually saying is, I'm totally fine with um, requisite force not necessarily being able to brought to bear on situations that might require it. Now some people are going to say, no, I disagree with that, Jeff it actually means I just want a different kind of force. I want a loving restorative force, right? So you have, I know this is a bit of a caricature, but we're going to replace police officers with social workers, especially for uh, mental health situations, which might be totally valid in some uh, circumstances. Um, But here's the counterintuitive thing. You, You do not want to live in a community where the police are abolished. I just guarantee you, you don't. And when surveys are done to community members who live in communities, the higher the crime rate, as, as the crime rate across communities goes like this, so does that community's desire for more effective policing. It doesn't go down. It goes up. And you know this intuitively. If there was out-of-control, spiraling violence in your neighborhood. You would want, you might not like it, you might wish that's not the reality of the world that we live in, but you would want requisite force being brought to bear against the momentum of evil to bring it uh, to an end, to restore uh, order so that people are safe and they feel safe. And that's what communities who... Are experiencing crime actually want. You don't want it to be used, but if need be, you want judgment to happen against human evil and wickedness. And sometimes I think in our culture, for many people, well let me think about, let me frame it this way. The more secure and safe, and insulated your life is, the more, the, just the whole idea of God's judgment won't really make sense to you. Because your experience on a daily life is like, life is good, life is fine, I'm safe, this is great, why would God judge anybody, like, it's, it's all good. But conversely, the more corrupt, and vicious, and cruel, and exploitative the context that you live in is, the more a God of judgment will not only make sense to you, it will be something that you long for. That's why the martyrs in Revelation 5 say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us. You know, you, you, can, you can talk about, and again, I'm not saying there's different ways and nuanced ways of reforming policing and, and, you know, looking at police brutality. Please don't hear that. What I'm saying is, you do not want to create a system where you think that everything's going to work as long as we just like mind our own business and love each other. That's not how life works, this side of heaven. And part of what God's judgment is, is God intervening in situations that if they're allowed to continue are just going to be catastrophically brutal. And so that's why although it's hard for us to wrap our heads around, Jews, the, uh, people of Israel, and then Christians for 2,000 years have celebrated the fact that we serve a God who is a judge. And it's so good that God cares enough about our world and about us that He doesn't just let evil go unchecked. So God's judgment against sin and those who refuse to come to Him are, is inevitable. Bo- those are both inevitable. And we should see that as a good thing. God isn't just going to let history play out and misery pile upon misery pile upon misery. Number two, God's judgment is gradual so that people can turn back to God. This is something that you don't see unless you pull back and see the pattern. But, you know, it's n- not in all the particularities, but in, the, in the, um, the grand generalizations, look at the sequence between the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. The seals are fairly vague. The final seal talks about a quarter of the earth or people dying, I think. But the rest of the seals are very vague. Then the trumpet judgments, you hear the language of a third being repeated. A third of this, a third of that, a third of that. Then the bowls are all. It's all, it's all. And that's a pattern of how God judges. God just doesn't just go nuclear option out of the gate. God is patient. He's long-suffering. And he introduces a little bit of intervention into your life and my life and our life as a, a community, a nation. Then when that doesn't work, he ramps it up, right? A third. And then he eventually will get to all full capital I intervention, capital J judgment, but he's gradually bringing his force to bear so that people can be restored to him. God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't want anyone to perish. There's a gradual, patient escalation of his judgment. He doesn't lose his cool and fly off the handle. His actions are measured and designed to lead us back home, and they're not designed to hasten our destruction. And so when we think of a God who judges, we often have the picture of Zeus in our mind with a lightning bolt ready to strike at any moment for, for any reason, just a fit of rage. That's not who God reveals himself to be. He will bring judgment to bear, but usually only after a long process of slowly turning up the heat so that people realize, I'm living like a fool. This is so dumb to reject and ignore God. I want to turn to Him and find life. And another big important truth that you need to see across all these judgments is those who belong to Jesus have nothing to fear. This is, again, these are judgments meted out against those who are resistant against God And the reason why people have nothing to fear in Jesus is because he said in John 5, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and won't come under judgment because he has passed from death to life. Jesus has already been... uh, Believers won't face a judgment because their sins were judged when Jesus died in their place on the cross. And so now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live with the threat of uh, a destructive judgment hanging over us. Because we are in Christ. We are cooperating with God. These judgments are levied against those who are very comfortable living life on their own terms or who are actively antagonistic towards God and His purposes in the world. So across these judgments and across these chapters in Revelation, what should be our response? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, I think the response should be to recognize and to think very deeply and carefully that judgment is coming against those who reject, ignore, resist God. God's mercy endures forever. But God's mercy does not extend forever. And so it's, it's time now to humble yourself before God, to get real with God, to turn to Jesus. And the amazing thing is, even though Jesus, John, hears about the Lion of Judah, and we might think if we come to God, he's going to be so angry and, and so vindictive and so like, oh, I told you so, and man, you got, you got ground to make up. And, and we have this stern, closed, angry, maybe father figure in our mind's eye. We're actually promised in Revelation that when we turn and flee to Jesus, we find a lamb. One of gentle, and is willing to take our burdens and receive us and love us. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer, how do you respond to these judgments? A really simple one. Pray for friends and family who are far from God. It's probably not going to be effective to sit them down at a table and open up Revelation 8 and go through these next chapters with them. Do you realize these bold judgments is what's going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's going to be effective. I think you can pray though for God to break through in their minds and hearts. I think you can pray that God would reveal himself as such, in such a way that the full magnitude of who God is and what he's offering them now and what is coming to those who place their trust in him and what is coming against those who say, in a sense, give God the middle finger and live life in their own way, that that would just set in their hearts and it would lead them to turn to God. If you're not a believer, judgment is coming, turn to Jesus, you'll discover a lamb, not a lion. For our church, those who have placed their faith in Christ, let's use these judgments as a prompt to pray for those who are lost and in need of finding the lamb. Let's pray. God, we ask for your mercy and your grace and your help not in understanding all the different details of these judgments but in seeing behind and through them your power and your grace and your sovereign purposes and your mercy and the life that is opened up because of your love for us. God, thank you so much for who you are. Make these Scriptures and these truths real to each of us. Amen. Why don't you stand? I'm going to send you out with the benediction. Our benediction this morning comes from Romans 15, 5 and 6. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God, the Holy Spirit, be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.